0: Well, we are back for another week of studying the apostolic age of church history. Over the past, I guess it's been 12 weeks now, we've been working our way through the first section in Grace to Use Forerunners of the Faith Sunday School Curriculum. It's been an absolute joy to do that. Um, we have been particularly studying the first century church age, which spanned roughly from 30 AD. To the end of the first century, but particularly with reference to the book of Acts, we're looking at about 30 AD to 65 AD. That's been the crux of our study over the past several weeks, and uh, Lord willing, we're going to wrap this portion of our study up today. And then next week, Lord willing, we will look at the last 30 or so years of the first century, and that'll take us into part two of our curriculum, which is the patristic age of church history patristic you're going to learn a new word i know y'all are excited about that but for our purposes today we are going to be focusing our attention right where we left off right before roman numeral six roman numeral six titled additional missionary journeys covering acts 16 through 8 excuse me 16 through 28 acts 16 through 28 Uh, Is the chapters of the book of Acts we'll be covering today. But before we do that, I need us to open with a word of prayer. And I would like for a volunteer to read Galatians 1, 6 through 9 for us. Because we are going to revisit that passage at the outset of our lesson today. So Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Who would be willing to read that? Ellie, thank you for volunteering. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And we will pick up where we left off in forerunners of the faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we need you every second of our lives. Whether we realize it or not, every aspect of reality is only made possible because you've ordained it in this particular way. And as Colossians 1 testifies, you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit uphold and sustain all of reality every millisecond of existence for your own glory and for the accomplishment of your eternal decree and for accomplishing the eternal good the eternal spiritual good of your people and lord before we came to saving faith we were completely dependent upon you and we were completely dependent upon you for opening our eyes at the appointed time of drawing us to yourself to repent of our sins to Repent of our unbelief and to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and to submit our lives to his lordship. Father, every aspect of our salvation is dependent upon you, just like every aspect of our existence and the existence of reality itself is dependent upon you. And God, we recognize that our Christian life, our spiritual pilgrimage is entirely dependent on upon you, upon your Holy Spirit, conforming us into greater degrees, into the personal and moral likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ, and sustaining us in our evangelism, and in our efforts to be salt and light, and your ambassadors before a fallen world, Lord, in the extracurricular activities, and our schoolwork, and our relationships, Father, our giftedness, every dimension of our lives, Lord is ultimately dependent upon you. Help us to remember that, Father. Help us to, in light of that dependence, help us to draw near to you in prayer. Help us to ascribe praise and worship to you on a regular basis because you are worthy of such. God, enlarge our faith. Give us great desire to commune with you, to fellowship with other believers. Help us to be transformed by the power and testimony of your word, working together with the Holy Spirit that dwells within us as believers. And today, Lord, may that be a means by which you accomplish that end, that through the study of Scripture, through the discussion of sound biblical and theological realities, may we be propelled into greater holiness, into greater worship, and ultimately to greater realization of our dependency upon you. We love you, God. We commit this study to you this morning. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, together with thy Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Ellie, whenever you're ready, take it away. Thank you for reading that, Ellie, to get us started. So, you'll notice right above Roman numeral 6, you'll notice a green box. And that green box has a heading that says, For Discussion, and there are, it looks like, two questions contained in that box. We're going to be looking at both of those questions, which is where we left off last week before we get into Roman numeral 6. And as you see in those questions, in light of reading Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, these are the questions that we need to consider. First question, what were the key differences between the gospel Paul preached and the errant gospel of the false teachers? Now, to answer that question, we need to remember what we talked about last week. So by way of review, what was it, for those of you who were here, what was it that... The early church was debating at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, roughly 49 to 50 A.D. Do you remember what controversy those church leaders were debating amongst themselves? And just to give you further hint, further um, insight as to how this question may be answered, why was the book of Galatians written particularly? That, that's really going to give you the answer to the question about Acts 15 and the question about what they were debating amongst themselves. Okay, I'll give you some more hints. Um, what was it? that jewish believers living in the old covenant old testament era of redemptive history what was it that the jewish believers placed great emphasis on you had to say one thing just start naming things off we'll get there eventually circumcision, circumcision. that's it now what was the significance of circumcision during the old testament side Right? Uh, Wasn't
1: it in some work of salvation?
0: Was it was not a work of salvation, but it but it was so the covenant with Abraham, particularly with Genesis seventeen, you see circumcision being um, being used as a out outward or an external sign that you identified with Abraham's descendants, which would ultimately culminate in the nation of Israel. Right? So. The redemptive historical significance of circumcision throughout the Old Testament, again, beginning with the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17 and extending all the way through the Old Testament, culminating in the nation of Israel, God's, God's theocratic nation. The significance of circumcision was that it was a sign of membership with that covenant nation, Israel. So male male um, adults, male children, male slaves, they all had to be circumcised. And that, remember, just, just not to be overly graphic with you guys, but the Bible is very real, so I have no shame in being real with you guys. The significance of circumcision was simply this. God promised Abraham a offspring, an heir, through a miraculous work of reproduction with he and his wife Sarah, who were well beyond the years of childbearing. If any of you guys know anything about circumcision, the foreskin of the male's uh, sexual organ would be um, cut off. That's what circumcision is essentially. So it would be a reminder that every time a male looked at their male sexual reproductive organ and saw the circumcised flesh, that was a reminder that God would provide his offspring, his promised offspring, and he ultimately did that with Isaac. So throughout the history of Old Covenant Israel, the males would be circumcised as a reminder. God was faithful to providing the promised heir, and now look at us, the nation of Israel. We have millions of people that God has been faithful to provide as a covenant promise It's a remarkable testimony to God's faithfulness. Now, Sai mentioned, as did Thomas, that circumcision was not an act of salvation. Circumcision, for the entirety of the Old Testament, was simply an external sign, an external reminder of God's faithfulness to provide the promised offspring, Isaac, through Abraham and Sarah, and then the Ultimate uh, fulfillment of that promise being the nation of Israel, millions of offspring, mi- millions of people who would identify as belonging to Abraham's tribe, Abraham's people. So, with that in mind, what do you think? Or what do you think Acts fifteen is talking about? What do you think the controversy was? If you remember, there should be some hints there in your workbook to kind of get you where you need to go. But this is very important. This is this is maybe if, if you want to talk about false doctrine in the New Testament, this is probably the the greatest or most repeated false doctrine that you're going to run into, particularly with reference to the gospel. What verse? Ellie, so saved through grace alone, through grace alone. And, and what do you think? So that or say, yeah, save yeah. I know what you're saying. God's grace through faith in Christ, right? We're saved. Um, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, Jesus Christ alone. You're absolutely right. I know, I know exactly what you're saying. So, in light of that reality, what do you think these false teachers were trying to do? Why do you think... they're say, and, what, and what worked particularly? Circumcision. That's exactly right. So, these false teachers, and here's what's sneaky about false teachers, my friends. False teachers can say a lot of things that sound biblical a lot of things that sound orthodox these first century false teachers they would have been Jewish they would have said of course god was faithful to providing a heir to providing offspring to the descendants of abraham of course jesus christ is god's messiah of course he's god of course you've got to believe in him to be saved all of that's true we know that we're bible believers right however They threw in a very small, subtle, but damnable caveat. And I say damnable because Paul uses that language in Galatians 1. These teachers said that you've got to believe in Jesus, but you've also got to be circumcised if you're a male. Circumcision is necessary to salvation. These, and they also included some other things, ceremonial aspects of the law, dietary, religious observances that we find throughout the Old Testament law. There were different nuances of this group of false teachers that we know today as the Judaizers. That was the group who was espousing this heresy. And essentially, in light of all that false doctrine, the main one was circumcision. They, They really wanted to drive that home. You've got to be circumcised if you're a male. These guys took their Bible seriously. They believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, but that wasn't enough. You had to add something to His finished work. So in light of that, I've given you a lot to chew on, but in light of all that information, what would you say then and I think Wit answered it well, but I want to I want you guys to reiterate it to make sure it really sinks in. What's the key difference particularly between the gospel that Paul preached and the errant gospel of the false teachers? Wit said the answer. I want to make sure you guys get it though. Yeah. Um, what's the key difference, you would say, in light of all that information about Acts 15 and the false teachers, What what is the key difference between the gospel Paul preached and the errant gospel of those false teachers? Correct. Paul taught that sinners are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Remember, just a few chapters before Paul in Acts 13, 38-39, he says this, Let it be known to you, brethren, that through Jesus Christ, this man, that through this man preached to you the forgiveness of sins, by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So Paul, just a few chapters before, he says sinners are saved exclusively through faith in the once-for-all finished work of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the dead. If you trust in that, you're saved. There's nothing else you need to do. There's no Old Covenant, Old Testament, Judaistic laws that you've got to follow and in addition to that. It's Christ in him alone. And these false teachers come out and say, it's Christ plus X, Y, and Z, particularly circumcision. And it's the same that we find in many of the false religions today. In fact, every false religion today teaches some variation of works-based salvation and works-based righteousness. That's why the old quote goes like this. There's really only two religions in the world. There's grace and there's works. Christianity is grace. Every other religion is works or a combination of grace and works, which ultimately is works. As Paul says in Romans 11.6, Grace is no longer grace if works are added to the equation. So, part two then of this very important opening question, and the reason I'm belaboring this is because we've got got to get this as Christians. This is fundamental to our theology, piety, and practice. To what we believe, why we believe what we believe, and how we live our faith out in this world. Why is it so important to understand the gospel Correctly, Let's go back to Galatians 1. Let's go back to Galatians 1 because this is so important. You need to have your Bible open to this so you can see it. This should be one of your go-to passages in your evangelism, particularly with, your, with our Roman Catholics and Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses friends. Church of Christ. Those who teach salvation through faith in Christ plus... Insert whatever work they do, add to that. What is Paul saying here in Galatians 1, 6 through 9? Notice verse 6, what does he call the message that these Christians were beginning to believe in? It's a what gospel? Verse 6, Galatians 1, 6. What does it say? Thought I heard different. different. A different gospel. So, what is it, if there's a different gospel, what does that presuppose? There's a, there's a wrong gospel, what does that mean? A right there's a right gospel, right? Now, what is the consequences now? So we know there's a right gospel and a wrong gospel. We know that, so for Paul, it doesn't matter. Paul did not believe that you can believe whatever you want to believe as long as you're sincere. Paul did not believe that. There's a lot of really good people in this world who are extremely religious. They're very good citizens. They're very sincere. But that's not good enough to be saved. Paul is not teaching here, believe whatever you want to believe as long as you're sincere and you're fine. It's not what the text says. Look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says, verse 8, if. We, referring to the apostles, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary, a different gospel than what we have preached to you. He is to be what? You know what that word accursed means? Let him be under the wrath of God. Let him be damned, is the translation from the Greek. Verse 9. I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, if any person is preaching to you a different gospel, he is to be damned. He is to be under the curse, under the wrath of God. So why then? Why then is it so important to understand the gospel correctly? Why do you think on the basis of this text that it's so important to understand the Gospel correctly? Because there's only one way to salvation, and what happens if you're wrong? You go to hell. There's no need to sugarcoat it. We are literally, my friends, this is, this is serious matters here. Like People right now, this very second... Are dying and going to hell with sincere religious convictions. They believe that through their works, through their religious expressions, that God or the pantheon of God's will accept them. And Paul's saying that their sincerity of belief is not enough. Their expressions of religion is not enough. They have believed a perverse message, a different Gospel. They are under the curse, under the wrath of God. My friends, we can't sugarcoat this. This is why we go... One of the reasons why we go into all the world and proclaim the good news. Because there's only one way, as Hannah said and as Jesus preached. We have to get the gospel right. That is why it's so important to understand the gospel correctly. Only a true understanding of the gospel can allow somebody to be saved. You have to have faith in the true gospel. Now, let me make sure I'm clear for the sake of you guys and the sake of the listener. You can certainly have a right view of the gospel and go to hell, right? You can believe all the facts about the gospel like the demons do, James 2, but your heart hasn't been transformed. You don't really believe them. Your life hasn't been transformed by those truths. You're just a demon, you're like a demon. You're not actually a demon, but you're like a demon. Um, you have the faith of a demon. That That's not good enough. So many who do have a true understanding of the gospel will go to hell. However, you can't go to heaven without a true understanding. Does that make sense? You can have a true understanding and go to hell, but you can't have a false understanding and go to heaven. You've got to at least, at the very least, to be saved. You've got to have a right understanding of the gospel. That's the bare minimum. That's why it's so important to get the gospel right and to be not only Christians that get the gospel right, but the local churches that Christians are a part of. We've got to be a biblical, gospel-rooted church. We've got to get the foundational principles of our religion right. And at the heart of our religion is the gospel, the foundation, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to everybody? Does anybody have any questions about that? Does anybody think I'm... Going way overboard here. Good, because I'm, I'm, this is this is really important stuff. Got it. Got to make sure we're all on the same page here. Well, Roman numeral six, we're looking at additional missionary journeys, Acts sixteen through twenty-eight. My teacher's guide here notes that most English Bibles have maps located in the back of them. Um, if you've ever looked at them, you've likely seen a map of Paul's missionary journeys. If you weren't here last week. We spent some time looking at the map that, that analyzes, that portrays Paul's three missionary journeys that we see uh, testify to throughout the book of Acts. Um, if you want a map, it looks like we've got a few over there on the ledge next to me, so feel free to grab that. But many of you probably have a map of those missionary journeys already in your Bible. But today, in light of that, We're going to take some time to look into Paul's second and third missionary journeys. We looked at the first briefly last week. And again, this is just a flyover of the book of Acts. We're not going really into too much depth. But we're going to look at missionary journeys two and three today. So you'll notice there's two blanks under Roman numeral six. And we're going to give you the answers to those blanks at this time. Our curriculum notes that Paul's second missionary journey started as a return trip to the churches that he and Barnabas had planted on their earlier trip. This time, Paul traveled with Silas, Acts 15, 40, and Timothy, Acts 16, 1 through 3. So, I'll read those texts just because they're so brief. Silas, S-I-L-A-S, And the second one was Timothy. We see Acts 15.40. Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Again, that's coming right off the heels of the Jerusalem Council. 49.50 A.D. roughly is the dates we're looking at there. And that is coming right off the heels of that controversy that was resolved by the apostles and the earliest disciples uh, throughout Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem. Timothy is mentioned, Acts 16, just a few verses beneath. Acts 16, verses 1 through 3. It says that Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So we see Timothy and Silas right on the hills of the Jerusalem council going with Paul to continue their efforts of planning biblical churches and sharing the gospel far and wide to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. Now the scope of their trip... It says, was expanded by the Holy Spirit, who in Acts 16, verses 9 through 10, gave Paul a vision of a man from Macedonia asking for help. Paul and his companions responded by traveling to cities in Macedonia and Greece, like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus. And in each city, Paul preached the gospel faithfully. He began in the, here's the next blank in your Curriculum. He began in the synagogue, reasoning with his Jewish hearers from the Old Testament. There's blank number two. Paul began in the synagogue, preaching the gospel faithfully, reasoning with his Jewish hearers from, second blank, the Old Testament. And when he was no longer welcome there, Paul would preach to the Gentiles, third blank in that paragraph, When Paul was no longer welcome there, he would preach to the Gentiles of that city. And it was during that second missionary journey when Paul would go on to write 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Does everybody get those blanks for that material? Everybody make sure you got those. Anybody need me to repeat those? Okay. Now, question for group discussion. Why do you think Paul was so intentional in preaching the gospel and reasoning with the Jews from the Old Testament? Let's start there. There's a lot. I mean, I think I can think of at least two primary answers off the top of my head that would be indication for why Paul was doing that. Why was Paul so intentional to preach the gospel to the Jews from the Old Testament? Yeah, common ground. Explain that, Hannah. What do you mean by that? That's exactly right. That's one of the two that I noted. I'm sure there's more than two, but I noted two main ones uh, prepared, so that's the only two we're going to talk about, unless you all come up with something great to share. Um, so, yeah, first first of two main answers, I think, to that question. Um, the Jews regarded the authority of the Old Testament. They still do to this day, by the way. Jews would say that the Old Testament is the inerrant, inspired, and infallible word of the living God. They would affirm that in spades. Um, As Hannah noted, if Paul could show how the Old Testament pointed to Christ, then they would ultimately, in in seeing Christ in the Old Testament, they would come to the place of possibly coming to saving faith. Now, obviously, God's got to be the one to transform the heart from spiritual death to spiritual life through regeneration to enable a spiritually dead sinner to believe. That would have been the case right with the Jews like it is with every person. In order for us to believe savingly, regeneration must precede faith. But you can't be saved, you can't be in a position to be saved unless you can understand the gospel. And the gospel is throughout the Old Testament. If you went to that women's Event on Friday night, which I know a couple of y'all did, that was that was masterfully demonstrated by Jen Wilkin. You've got the gospel, the Proto Evangelion, the first gospel in Genesis three fifteen, and throughout the Old Testament, through through prophecies, through pictures, through promises, you see the promise that God provides that He will bring forth a Savior, a Redeemer, a Messiah to forgive his people or to enable his people to be forgiven of sin so first possible answer i think is that it was paul's way of establishing common ground with the jews to bring them to the place of recognizing the gospel in the old testament so that they might be in a position to be saved now what do you think the second this is a very pragmatic answer but what do you think the second answer may be to that primary answer? Y'all might come up with a different one. But think about it. We're in the early 50s at this point. First and 2 Thessalonians was written between 51 and 55 AD. Most conservative Bible scholars would say that. So when Paul's reasoning with Jews in the synagogues, and he's doing so from the Old Testament, why do you think it was just the Old Testament? Sorry.
1: They've already okay.
0: like Right? Right? Those are all good. That that all echoes a lot of what Hannah was saying, but there's there's something very basic though that I'm looking for here. Think about this. Was the whole New Testament completed by the early to mid 50s? No. No, by that point, frankly, he maybe had four or five books written. James, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians, There's four books that I can think of off the top of my head that we know conservative scholars date before about 54 AD. So, And those letters wouldn't have been widely circulated probably by that point either. It took time for those letters to be be copied and those copies to go out and then for those copies to be copied and them to go out. It would have taken time for those authoritative New Testament letters to be circulated amongst believers, right? And of course, as we established from our previous point, if Jews already reject Christ as Messiah on the basis of the Apostles' testimony, why on earth would you use the New Testament? Why not start with what you can already agree to, right? That was the first point that Hannah brought up. So, point number one. Why was Paul reasoning with the Jews from the Old Testament, preaching the gospel, reasoning with the Jews from the Old Testament? I think two simple explanations. Number one, you had common ground. Number two, the New Testament wasn't even around at that point, at least in full blossom. You might have had four or five letters potentially, but you didn't have a full New Testament. None of the gospel records were written by that point. So you're going off of oral testimony, but you had the written Old Testament to confirm that oral testimony that the apostles and earliest disciples would have been sharing. So go to that as your common ground source of authority. And, of course, it's the Word of God, right? We recognize the Old Testament of the Word of God. So show how the Word of God is pointing to Christ, God incarnate, God in human flesh, right? All right, second part of this question, though, for follow-up. In light of this approach that Paul was modeling, and, of course, that the other apostles and earliest Christians would have been modeling, how should we ourselves 2,000 years later, How should we model this approach with the Old Testament in our evangelism and discipleship endeavors? So, through our evangelism, the act of. Does everybody know what evangelism means? What's evangelism? The act of sharing the gospel with others, the act of sharing the faith with others, right? All right, and second word, discipleship. Does everyone know what discipleship means? What does discipleship mean? So disciple means to be a learner or a follower, a student. So when we talk about discipling somebody or discipleship, what are we talking about? We're talking about growing or teaching or causing somebody to learn, right? So in our acts of sharing the gospel with others, that's evangelism. And in the act of helping believers learn and grow spiritually, that's discipleship. How should we allow the Old Testament to function in those and those endeavors. How should we follow Paul's approach in that? What do you think? If we're sharing our faith with others, if we're evangel- or if we're discipling believers, how should the Old Testament come into play?
1: Right. Because it it all starts back to like
0: our fault. Yeah. Right. So Why is the world so messed up? There's Genesis That's three, right? Explain that. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean some people some people might not look the old
0: testament, so you can use it in that way So
1: like point to the New Testament and our
0: salvation. Right. Let me quote John MacArthur for a second. This is not a direct quote, but it's it's a paraphrase that I heard when I was a student at Masters. Um have you ever met a, a Hittite have you ever met an Amorite? How about a Jebusite? How about a Babylonian? But how about a Jew? You ever, you've heard of Jews, right? Israelites? Y'all should be nodding your head yes. I think everybody in this room has heard of an Israelite or a Jew. So let me ask you this. There is a whole nation in this world, like in the world we live in, my friends. I want you all to let this sink into your soul. This is why the Old Testament is so important. There is an entire nation called Israel in the Middle East. What is the vast majority of the Old Testament about? Right. So if somebody's sitting around and thinking, huh. Where did, what is this deal about Israel? Where did they come from? We've got a whole book of about 4,000 plus years of their history. And then, of course, the 2,000 years of um, New Testament history, or I should say, church age history. We've got at least 6,000 years of the history of Israel that explains how they came into being. Whereas you've got people groups all over the world where nobody can explain how they came into being. We know ultimately they came into being probably after the Tower of Babel when the people groups spread and created their own um, tribes and cultures and customs and all of that. However, this is key. Why is the Old Testament so important? Hannah mentioned explains the fall of man. Why is the world so messed up? explains the existence of Israel. It explains where Jesus came from. I mean, I believe, let's just say for the sake of argument, there was no such thing as the Old Testament. I believe the New Testament is sufficient to cause somebody to be saved and to know God. You still have Jesus. You still have explanations about the fall and His redemption and and how you should live the Christian life and how you should have a relationship with God. You have all of that in the New Testament. But if you didn't have the Old Testament for that context, you lose something, right? You lose a lot of profound implications, The Old Testament, really, when viewed in light of the New Testament, it's just a testimony of the faithfulness of God, the power of God, the grace and mercy and love of God, because the gospel's there. Those are some things to think about. So how should the Old Testament, Hannah, I really enjoyed your answer there, how should the Old Testament come into play in our evangelism and discipleship efforts? I think, quite simply, we should use it. We should should be passionate about the Old Testament, it's very easy to neglect it because it's it's pretty strange to us. It's 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 a Eastern culture. We're in a Western culture. It's from thousands of years ago. I mean, at least probably I think the Malachi was the last book, and I think that was written like five to seven hundred years before. Or no, the intertestamental period was about four hundred and fifty years, so let's just call it five hundred years to be saved. So at the very at the very earliest The last book of the Old Testament is about 2,500 plus years from where we're located at right now in history. Genesis is like, you know, 4,000 plus years. You know, it's crazy, right? That's just foreign to our thinking. But it's valuable. It points to Christ. It points to what he accomplished and why the New Testament is so significant. And we learn a lot of great truths about God. So we as Christians need to be passionate about the Old Testament in our evangelism and in our discipleship. Well, as we move on, um, there's, I think there's two more blanks. We'll get to them here. Paul's third missionary journey began in Acts 18.23. He traveled to cities where he'd already been during that missionary journey, like Ephesus and Corinth, in order to strengthen the churches there. And during his time in Ephesus, Paul trained the disciples for two more years. And we see that recorded in Acts 19, verses 8 through 10. As a result, churches throughout Asia Minor, that's that blank there, a little bit further down your page. As a result, churches throughout Asia Minor were planted in places like Colossae. And despite the dangers that Paul faced throughout his missionary journeys, his commitment to the Lord never wavered. He boldly proclaimed the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's read up on those dangers briefly. Um, Some of you will be familiar with them. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 29. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 29, a familiar passage. We've talked about it in weeks past. We even talked about it during our study of fundamentals of the faith. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 29. And I do need a volunteer to read that passage for us. I forgot how to read, so I need someone to read for me. Very good. Oh, so, so Whit, does that mean you're going to read? Yep. Hey, we want to we hear how good you are. So go ahead and read that for us, buddy. It is a lot of pressure. Don't, don't stutter. Don't mispronounce anything. Yep, to 29. Everybody, follow along in your Bibles. This should be a great encouragement to you.
1: Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death.
0: Keep going. Oh. All the way to verse 29.
1: Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers of the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intentions?
0: Read verse 30. we got to have verse 30 in there.
1: If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my
0: weakness. Very good. My friends, And we all have to get there. Man, by God's grace, I pray that we get there. To be able to recognize that in the Christian life, weakness is strength. Weakness is power, my friends. That's what Paul's saying there. He's saying, I have gone through the most incredible trials imaginable for the sake of Christ. For the sake of advancing God's kingdom. And he'll go on in, in chapter 12 to say, God's power is made perfect in my weakness. God's grace is sufficient for me. Man, what a, what a mystery that is. Because this world values strength. It values wisdom. It values self-sufficiency. But my friends, to be the men and women God's called us to be, we have to recognize that in and of ourselves we are weak and we can't do it ourselves. We need God. We have to be ultimately dependent upon Him to be who He's called us to be. I pray every one of you guys, including myself, will really wrestle with that in our own souls. Weakness, dependency upon God, is strength, spiritually. That's what Paul's getting at. But I do have a question for you. Well, how do you think Paul was able to endure all of those hardships and remain faithful in his calling as an apostle? How many of you guys, after getting beaten one lash away from dying, you know, 39 lashes... In those days, 40 would kill you, typically. And it says here, he did that, that happened to him five times, on top of you know being shipwrecked and being thrown in prison and having to run for his life away from robbers and people trying to stone him. I mean, if I could just be absolutely blunt, who would want to put themselves through something like that? That's, that's insane. You know what I mean? Like, no logical human being would put themselves through something like that. But or would they? Or would they? What do you guys think about that? What was that side? Say it one more time. He would if he knew the reward in heaven. That's that's a profound answer, right? He wrote that Philippians one for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. In other words, when I'm on earth, my life is for Christ. It's for his kingdom, his glory. But if I die, I know where I'm heading. I know what awaits me. I'm going to be with my God, and I know that my labors will not go unrewarded. What else do you think, though? Why? How, does, how does somebody keep going? Let's make, it, let's make it practical. Not all of us, let's just be honest, not all of us is going to go through that. Many of us, frankly, here's what's going to happen. You're going to live 60 to 80 years, maybe 90 years, it's going to be a very ordinary, good life, unless you know something drastically wrong happens in our country. Uh, but you're probably going to live in America. You're going to have freedoms. Um, you're going to have a family. Your persecution might be you get ridiculed at work or you might lose some relationships because of your faith in Christ, but you're, you're not going to go through that, right? I'm not going to go through that as a minister. But let's say... You get cancer, or your child dies, or you lose a sibling, or a parent, or a dear friend, or your spouse leaves you. What causes a person who believes in a good, gracious, merciful, loving, all-powerful God to see such wickedness and heartbreak and hardships take place and say, though He slay me, yet I will trust in Him. I'm going to keep serving the Lord because He's worthy. Even if I can't make sense of all this, even if it breaks my heart, even if it's the hardest thing I could have ever imagined going through, I'm still going to serve Him. What causes somebody to do that? It's faith in trials, but what causes someone to keep the faith? How can you not just give up? Why not just abandon this God and live however you want to live? Fill up your satisfaction to the uttermost. What's keeping them in the game? In the spiritual race? That's it. God is the one. If you could lose your salvation, you would. If I could lose my salvation, I would. Let me give you some text for encouragement. How could Paul keep going? How will you keep going? How will I keep going? It's because of these promises, my friends. John 6 37 to 40. Write these down. You're going to need these when trials come, and they will come. John six thirty-seven and following. Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who believes in the Son will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The reason why you're going to continue in the faith is not because of your hold on to God, but because of his hold on to you. He is the one that will keep you going when, t- when times get tough, when trials come. Paul, 1 Corinthians 4, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. He says, I thank my God always concerning you, believer, for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is, Verse 8 who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And last cross-reference I'm going to give you for your own encouragement in the book of Jude. Verses 24 and 25, we sing this as the benediction at the end of some of our morning corporate worship services. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, from falling, from abandoning Christianity. That's who we praise. And that's the God who you belong to. The one who will keep you to the end. Oh, there's just one chapter in Jude. So just Jude 1, 24, 25. Um, You know what I've always wanted to do? I, I mean, you guys will make fun of me, but... Before we do First John, after finishing James, I kind of want to just do the book of Jude. It'll wind up taking us six months, you know, but um, it would be it would be really beneficial. We'll just do a quick we'll do a quick uh, little study. Um, uh, uh, we would be let's all right. Um, <laughs> I opened up a can of worms. Uh, okay, does anyone have any questions, though, about those passages? That's a really important point, guys. Like, for you as a Christian, if there's anything that I want you to learn, I know I say this about, like, 50% of what I say. Like, if there's anything I want you to learn, I want you to learn this. Guys, when you go through difficulties, go to those passages. Pray those truths over yourself. Remind yourselves of them. God loves me. He's faithful. He's going to keep me. This is hard, but I will endure because God will give me the grace to do so. His power is made perfect in my weakness. Another, Write this down just just because. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. It's just too rich, too good of a passage not to remind ourselves of from time to time, especially when times get tough. Now moving on, um, Busnitz in our teaching guide says this. He says Paul's third missionary journey ended in Jerusalem. We see the ending there in Acts twenty-one seventeen. It was during this journey that Paul wrote First and Second Corinthians in the Book of Romans, and we know from the rest of the Book of Acts that while Paul was in Jerusalem, Acts twenty-one and following, all the way really from the end of Acts twenty-one in through Acts twenty-six, we read of the following accounts. In Jerusalem, Paul was seized by an angry mob in the temple who mistakenly thought he had invited Gentiles into the temple grounds. Paul was rescued by Roman soldiers who then took him into custody. Paul would spend the next two years imprisoned in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, and Luke, who was one of Paul's traveling companions, likely wrote his gospel during this time. If I could really quickly, by way of parenthesis... When Paul gave that laundry list of hardships in 2 Corinthians 11, none of that had even happened yet. Like, things were just only going to get worse from then. Paul wrote that in the early 50s. He would live another 10 to 12 years. So, that, as bad as it was for Paul at that point, it only would get worse. Uh, I don't know if that's encouraging or not, but uh, nevertheless. Moving on. Moving um, on. Boosnitz continuing, he writes, After appearing before King Herod Agrippa II, Paul was deemed innocent. However, because he had appealed to Caesar, as we see recorded in Acts 26-32, Paul was then sent to Rome to stand trial. Now, this is an interesting question. Somebody read Romans chapter 1. I've got a question. I, I, I just thought this was cool as I was prepping to study this. Romans chapter one, verses ten through twelve. All right. Well, your Bible, your Bible's not open. Um, Ellie, Ellie looks like is there. Ellie, yeah, yeah. Romans chapter one, verses ten to thirteen. Or read just Read verse. Read verse nine. Romans 1, verses 9
1: through
0: 13. Well, you just read. We've got to give some other people some chances. Are you there right now, Cy? You've got to, you've got to be flipping there if you are going to read. Romans 1, verses 9 through 13. I really appreciate the volunteering, though. It's good to see you all wanting to get involved. Yeah. Very good. So we know Paul has already written this letter by Acts 21, okay? He wrote this letter during his third missionary journey, as we just read earlier, along with first and second Corinthians. Now, I want us to think about this, okay? Think really critically about this. We've just read from Romans that Paul wanted to go visit the Romans, right? He, he ultimately wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to take the gospel all the way as far west as at that period of history, that was as far as the known world was, as far as the Roman Empire was concerned. He wanted to go all the way out to Spain with the gospel. Paul winds up... Oh, well, I don't want... Er, let me ask the question. Um, based on what we just read in Romans 1, 9-13, Paul expresses his heartfelt desire to come to Rome and meet the Christians in Rome. How do the events recorded in Acts 26 and following provide us with an illustration of God providentially bringing that desire to pass? So Paul goes to prison in Rome. He has said he's prayed, he's desired earnestly to go to Rome and meet the brethren there. Well, how does God ultimately answer that prayer? How does He How does He answer it? He goes to Rome, right? He, he gets to go to Rome, but what happened? Well, how did he get to Rome? Are, well, he was shipwrecked, but why was he? What was the means? Like, he was a prisoner. Like, think about this. God, now listen to this. Be careful what you never. Hey, Be careful what you pray for. And God sometimes does things that just make your mind go, wow. Blows your mind, right? So God answered Paul's prayer. Paul got to meet many Christians in Rome. But how he went about getting to Rome, shipwreck, as you mentioned, uh, being a prisoner, I don't think Paul would have signed up for that when he initially prayed to go to Rome. I, I thought that was very fascinating. And by way of application... I just want to remind each of us here today, there's going to be many times in your life where you pray for something. God may answer it, but he might answer it in a way completely different than what you could have ever imagined. I've got several testimonies from my own life of that happening. I'm sure in time you will likewise. So in Acts 27, Paul finds himself on a transport ship bound for Rome as a prisoner. It was during that voyage that Paul and his fellow shipmates survived a dramatic shipwreck. He would eventually make it to Rome and be placed under house arrest for approximately two years. That's the final blank for Roman numeral 6. Paul was placed under house arrest for approximately two years. That is recorded in Acts 28 verses 30 to 31. And this first Roman imprisonment would have occurred from about 60 to 62 A.D., which is when Luke likely wrote the book of Acts. Luke was a traveling companion with Paul. That's why the book of Acts concludes around the early to mid-60s A.D. There's no mentioning of Paul's death. There's no mentioning of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And really, there's no mentioning of the Gospels in the book of Acts. Because the Gospels were being written around the time that Luke was writing the book of Acts. So, with that in mind, we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts around 60-62 to AD. And it was during that house arrest period that Paul would go on to pen what are known as the prison epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. And then later on, of course, he would be under house arrest again, and he would go on to write um, 2 Timothy, where that was, that's the last recorded um, Pauline letter that we have in the New Testament. So that is our, I guess it's been now, what, eight or nine weeks of going through the book of Acts. So we, we made it. We have finished the first 32 to 35 years of first century history Um, Lord willing, next week we are going to cover the remaining 30-ish years of of the first century of church history before we begin the next section of our Forerunners of the Faith curriculum, being the patristic age of church history, spanning from roughly 100 A.D. to roughly 500 A.D., so 2nd to 6th century-ish. That's the time frame for that period. Does anybody have any questions, thoughts, comments before We conclude our study with a word of prayer. Very good. Well, guys, it's been my joy to go on this canvas, this 35,000 foot flyover of the book of Acts. We're going to wrap up this section next week. I'm looking forward to it already. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed for corporate worship. Father, it's with great joy that we have concluded our flyover of the book of Acts. And Father, I pray that every heart in this room has been fed by contemplating your faithfulness and your goodness throughout the course of the first century church and how the Old Testament pointed to what you would accomplish in the fullness of times in the new covenant era of redemptive history. Lord, it is a it is a remarkable testimony to your providence and to your wisdom that all of scripture is interwoven together that it's it's harmonious, that it's complementary that it is without error. And God, I just pray that we've been able to see that so clearly over the past several weeks and months of our study of the book of Acts and, and really how church history is just the continuation of Old Testament history as well. Lord, I pray for the families represented in this room. I pray that you would continue to confirm them in their assurance of salvation and to to fill their hearts with joy as they serve you in the different areas of life that you've entrusted to them and that you've placed them in help them to be good stewards of their giftedness and of their responsibilities lord help this church to come alongside them in prayer and in support every chance we have uh, to do so and lord as we prepare to leave this time of sunday school for those who are going to corporate worship lord may we worship you in spirit and in truth may we Uh, Be refreshed to begin a new week as we leave our our time together as FBC Edna on the Lord's Day. And for those who've already gone to corporate worship and for those who are leaving this time of Sunday school, Lord, I pray for your blessings on them. Give them safe travels as they head home, uh, and may they honor you supremely this week and all the different activities you've prepared for them. We love you, God. We give you thanks for this time together this morning. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.